Well, as we continue in this little mini-series, which I honestly wasn't expecting to get into, but I'm into it now, and so we're going for it, uh, on this subject of evangelism, I want to think with you and talk with you this morning about sharing Christ in a Christ-like way. Seems almost uh, an obvious thought, but I would submit to you that this may be one of the big areas where we blow it, where we miss the mark when it comes to sharing the gospel with others, is we're doing it in a way that is not like Christ. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 26, and this may seem like an odd passage at first to talk about evangelism from, but I really think there's principles here that uh, hopefully you'll see uh, apply in very practical ways. Second Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 23, Paul writes, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. And this last section is really what drew my heart to this passage in regards to evangelism and reaching the lost with the gospel. If, perhaps, God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Father, what a shocking description of all of us apart from Christ. That we have been ensnared and enslaved by the God of this world, Satan himself. And we have no other choice but to do his will rather than your will and even our will. But Lord, we rejoice that by your grace and by your mercy, you granted us repentance and led us to the knowledge of the truth. You brought us to our senses, and now you've given us the the privilege, the responsibility to turn around and take this good news that has transformed our lives and to share it with others, and Lord, forgive us for the times we share it in, in a way that's unproductive, it's unprofitable, it's offensive, it's not the way you intended for your good news of salvation to be shared or communicated with others. And so would you help us today as we consider these words uh, from your spirit through Paul's pen that we would see what they mean and how they apply to us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we learned that every Christian is called to be an ambassador for Christ, who faithfully proclaims the good news of peace so that people can be reconciled to God. And we said that no one is in a better position to serve 
as what Paul called a minister of reconciliation than those of us who have been reconciled to God ourselves. That's why we're a better choice than angels, because they've never experienced that reconciliation. They don't need to. And so whatever we do for a living, whether we're a pastor or a plumber or a homemaker or a bookkeeper or a flight attendant or a personal assistant or a professor or a contractor, a mechanic or a nurse, a policeman, a fireman, our highest calling in life as a believer is to be a heavenly ambassador. In fact, our job, or at least we should consider our jobs as simply a cover for why we are here on this earth, to share with those we interact with and converse with how they can have peace with God. And so this morning, I I thought it would be helpful just to consider the attitude of an ambassador, the, the attitude that we should have as ambassadors of Christ as we interact with and converse with unbelievers. And the reason why I think we should need to talk about this and think about this is because sadly, too often we as Christians are guilty of contradicting the very message we share by the attitude with which we share it. In other words, our tone or our temper or temperament are not consistent with the truth that we've been called to communicate. And ironically, we end up sharing Christ in an un-Christ-like way. And it's no wonder why no one ever comes to Christ. I was recently talking to a guy who uh, reminded me when they first got saved, um, they were so passionate for Christ, uh, their newfound faith, zealous that others would come to know Christ like they had just come to know Christ, they would actually go to Walmart and walk up to people, just walk around Walmart, they didn't go there to shop, they just went there to witness And they just walk around people. Here's people just innocently walking down, looking in the bluebell aisle for the next new flavor of bluebell. And they walk up and and they just say, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And and of course, that would be a a shocking thing. And then they would say either yes or no. And then if they said no, then he'd say, then you need to know that you're going to hell. And uh, he said that people would just kind of take their card and walk away. Uh, they would kind of get their kids and pick them up and run. You know, it's like, who is this crazy guy, you know, in Walmart assaulting me with this message, right? This, this uh, you know, um, proselytizing me. And uh, he, he admitted that it wasn't very effective. But bless his heart, right? He was, he was excited about telling others about Jesus. He was just going about it in all the wrong way. Well, the challenge that we face as Christians is that what we believe and how we live our lives is diametrically opposed to what the rest of the world believes and how they live their lives. Have you ever thought about that? That's a problem. And that's why we typically face opposition whenever we share the gospel with unbelievers since we're essentially confronting and correcting their wrong thinking or their wrong living. And so it shouldn't come as no surprise why they tend to get resistant or maybe even antagonistic towards us. What's more, we need to understand that we face not just the natural personal opposition from another human being, we face spiritual opposition when we're engaged in evangelism from Satan. 
who will do whatever he can to not lose anyone that he's ensnared and enslaved to serve him and to spend eternity with him in hell. And so as ambassadors of Christ, we have our work cut out for us, don't we? And if we're to be faithful to and successful in our mission to tell others about Christ, we have to have the attitude of Christ himself. And in this passage, Paul provided a description, I think, of the kind of attitude an ambassador of Christ needs to have. Now, let me give you the the historical context here, just because we're kind of just parachuting down uh, into the middle of this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. But Timothy... Um, was Paul's young disciple, uh, his young protege. He was the young man that he had poured his life into and was about to hand the baton of ministry off to him. Uh, Paul was about to die and go and receive his reward in heaven uh, for his years of faithful service, and he was going to hand that baton off to Timothy, and Timothy was going to run his lap. But Timothy was in a challenging place of ministry. He was serving as the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and evidently things had gotten so bad there in that church that he was tempted to pack up and leave. You may may remember that in the first letter Paul wrote uh, to Timothy, after his customary greeting, the very first thing he said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 3, he said, "'Remain on at Ephesus.'" in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. In Acts 20, again, just to give some more historical context here, in Acts 20, Paul had previously warned the leadership of the Ephesian church when he met with the elders on his way to Jerusalem that false teachers were going to rise up from among them, even among the elder team. And they would lead, these false teachers would lead the people astray from the truth by teaching things that weren't based on the word of God. And Paul spent a good portion of the second letter to Timothy explaining to him how to deal with these false teachers that had, 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 had risen up and infiltrated the church in Ephesus. And so it was Timothy's responsibility to confront these men who had gone astray from the truth and correct their wrong thinking and their wrong living in order to keep that heresy and hypocrisy from spreading throughout the church and upsetting people's faith. And so here in chapter 2, and particularly verses 14 through 19, Paul explained the tactics that Timothy was to use to combat false teaching and to protect, protect people from its catastrophic effects, mainly being diligent himself, verse 15, to present himself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. And then he went on to exhort Timothy in verses 20 through 22 to stay set apart from the false teachers so that he would be a useful tool in the hands of God. He was to remain holy. He he mentions there in verse uh, 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And now in these closing verses, verses 23 through 26, Paul explained to Timothy the best approach to take in contending for the truth against false teachers, which 
which would serve as the most effective way to confront, to correct their wrong thinking and their wrong living. And, and really, the overarching theme of, of Paul's two letters to Timothy was to guard and defend sound doctrine. That was what he was exhorting Timothy. And, and like a soldier, he was, he was likening Timothy to a soldier. He likens him to a soldier in, earlier in this chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. No soldier in active... Well, first verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. So Paul was likening Timothy to a soldier who was to fight for the truth. But at the same time, Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy didn't act like some religious Rambo who just kind of went out there and just kind of blew everybody away that got in his path and opposed him. In other words, there's a right way and a wrong way to approach those whose beliefs or lifestyles are different than ours and are in need of correction. You may be one of these Christians, or you may know a Christian like this, who use their Bible like a bazooka. And they just blow away anybody with it who disagrees with them. They, they beat people over the head with their Bible. Others share their faith like a flamethrower. It just scorches everything in their path. And despite their good intentions to proclaim the truth of the gospel, they end up doing more harm than good. And sadly, people are driven further away from Christ rather than drawn closer to Christ. Instead of leading people to freedom in Christ, they're left in captivity to Satan. And I think that's why Paul's instruction here in in these verses is so practical for us because it shows us how to contend for the faith without being contentious. How to combat false living or false beliefs without being combative. Or maybe the way I like to think about it is is how to avoid being a jerk for Jesus. Because some of us are good at that, right? We're just just jerks when it comes to to interacting with unbelievers. We're we're jerks about it. And, And so how can we avoid being a jerk for Jesus? Well, in verses 23 through 26, Paul explained to Timothy four approaches, four approaches to confronting and correcting others with the truth that I think will prove most effective in helping them escape from the satanic snare of wrong thinking and wrong living. And these four approaches work with both believers and unbelievers alike. These approaches we need to use with those who are saved, but maybe uneducated, maybe those who are misinformed, or maybe those who are deceived about the truth. And obviously, we can use these approaches with those who are unsaved and those who are blinded to the truth. And so what are these approaches? Number one, refuse to discuss silly speculative subjects. Refuse to discuss silly speculative subjects. Verse 23, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Now, 
by this point in Paul's letters to Timothy, and I would say even Titus, we, we know these as the pastoral epistles, um, he, he was beginning to sound like a broken record when it came to commanding Timothy to not allow false teachers to draw him into stupid debates about speculative matters that, that can't be proven one way or the other from Scripture. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, he says, don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Verse 6, for some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Chapter 4, verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. No offense, those of you who are a little older, ladies, but there are certain things that apparently older women are, are, are prone to, to think about, talk about, and maybe even be duped by uh, when it comes to false teachers. Uh, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he's talking about uh, false teachers here who are conceited, they understand nothing, they have morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. And then verse 20, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments as what is falsely called knowledge. And then, then his letter to Titus, who was on the island of Crete and overseeing the churches there and the appointment of elders there, in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And so this was not just a, a side comment, a passing comment. This was kind of a theme uh, throughout the pastoral epistles. But notice back in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, he says, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. That Greek word for foolish is where we get our word moron. And uh, in other words, refuse moronic speculations. Um, hey, let's face it. Some people love to discuss and argue about what I would say are silly little side issues that, that get a conversation off track by running down endless rabbit trails that go nowhere. And, and you know as well as I do, if you've spent any time sharing the gospel with unbelievers uh, throughout your Christian life, it's not uncommon for unbelievers to dodge the topic of their sin. As soon as you begin talking about sin, right, they want to they immediately uh, deflect and, and go somewhere else. And, and so one of the ways that unbelievers do that is they pose some controversial question that we will never be able to completely answer this side of heaven. Like, okay, if this is all true, then, you know, that God created the world and, and, and created Adam and Eve. Did Adam have a belly button? I mean, you think about that. If he wasn't born, right, didn't have an umbilical cord, did, did he have a belly button? Like, well, let me think about that for a second. Uh, or, or really, do you really expect me to believe that some guy in the Old Testament got swallowed by a whale and survived for three days inside of a whale and they want to discuss you know, the, the possibility of being swallowed by a fish? Or how about this? Is it okay, if this is true, if God is so great, could God make a rock so big that even he couldn't move it? I mean, these are little silly 
questions, right? I mean, I'm just making these things up uh, of, of different things. You may have other examples of questions that you've been asked that you know it, it was just to, to, to sidetrack the conversation away from sin. Well, what Paul's saying is don't even go there. Proverbs 26, 4 says, don't answer a fool, what? According to his folly. Stick to the basic truths of the gospel. Just, just do everything you can to stay on track, talking about who God is and what he's done for us and, and who, who, who they are and, and what they've done and, or not done and the sin and their problem of, 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 uh, that they are helplessly lost and hopelessly headed for hell. And, and, and then the good news of Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross and his death and his resurrection. And then what does the Bible say about repentance and faith? I mean, those are the, the important issues. And so Paul says to avoid or refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. That word ignorant means without discipline, without training, without uh, education. And, and I think this is, this is good for us to think about because a lot of times people want to discuss things with us and argue about things that they've never taken the time to actually study out for themselves what the Bible says about that subject. They're, and so what, they're, what they have to do, they're, they resor- they're resorting to just sharing their own ideas, their own opinions, or the ideas and opinions of, of someone else that they've heard other than God. And what they're doing is they're showing their ignorance by not bothering to check whether or not what they think or what they have heard lines up with Scripture. And so all they can do is speculate. And that's what he's saying. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. Things that that have no basis in the word of God. They're totally subjective. They're based on personal opinion. They're based on personal preference. And so I think we should just flat out refuse to discuss people's subjective opinions or subjective questions unless they can back them up with scripture. And again, this is not just talking about conversations with unbelievers, it's even talking about conversations with Christians, with believers. We need to encourage people to take their questions and their opinions and compare them with the word of God. And to diligently study the scriptures and and then and only then should we be willing to have a discussion with them about it. And I think the approach that we should take with unbelievers Um, who focus on what they think rather than what the Bible says is to remind them that this discussion that we're having is not my opinion versus your opinion. Because most unbelievers, when you get into a conversation with them, uh, in in their minds, this is just a war of opinions. And I'm going to share, you're sharing with me your opinion and, 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 uh, and I'm going to share with you my opinion. And because you know, we have to be tolerant, you have to listen to my opinion, I, and I have to listen to your opinion, and then we're free to, you know, uh, stick with our own opinions, if that's what we want to do. But I think we need to help people realize is, is that this, this conversation is, is not about my opinion versus your opinion, or what I think versus what you think. No, this is what you think versus what God's Word says. Big difference. That changes the playing field. That changes the rules, right? As long as it's what you think versus what they think, what they believe versus what you believe, their opinion versus your opinion, they feel safe. And, and, and honestly, they can beat you in that 
conversation, in that discussion. They'll beat you. You'll get beat up. You'll walk away with some black and blues, from, from, from some black eyes from that conversation because you're fighting on their level. But as soon as you take yourself out of the equation and say, hey, this is not about what you think versus what, this is what you think versus what God's word says. And, and so don't let them blow you off or blow off what you're saying as, oh, that's just your opinion, or that's just what you think. No, it's not what I think. It's not my opinion. I'm simply telling you what God's word says. And in some cases, maybe more with believers who want to argue with us about something, we can say, hey, listen, unless you can show me from the Bible why you believe a certain thing or live a certain way, then we're not going to discuss it. Because it's, it's not in the Bible, it's your opinion, it's your, it's your choice, it's your thinking. And again, if we, if we don't do this, it, it's just going to end up in a futile argument that results in strife and, and division. And that's what he says here, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce what? Quarrels. And by the way, that's the last thing you want to do, is to get into an argument or a quarrel with an unbeliever. You're trying to win them to Christ, not run them off, right? And so you want to avoid these types of useless discussions that, that really just confuse and, and, and tear people down rather than encourage and build them up. And so by refusing to discuss silly, speculative subjects, we will be able to keep the discussion on the track of truth and just gently and graciously and and kindly bring the conversation back on point, is the point. Don't say, oh, that's just stupid. Let's get back to what I was talking about. No, just bring them back on track. Say, hey, listen, I appreciate that question. I know, you know that might seem important, but it's really not as important as this. And, and hey, I'd be more than happy to, to look into that and get back to you about that. But, but for now, hey, let's just get back to talking about this. So first of all, we need to uh, refuse to discuss silly speculative subjects. Secondly, we need to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really the heart, I think, of this passage. This is how we share Christ in a Christ-like way. Notice what he says in verse 24. The Lord's bondservant, and by the way, we could fit in there the Lord's ambassador, from last week's message, the Lord's bondservant or ambassador must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, when with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Now, we know Paul often referred to himself as the Lord's bondservant. Romans 1, Philippians 1, Titus 1, we're right there. You just look across the page, maybe. Titus 1.1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. This was one of Paul's favorite, um, I guess, um, titles for himself as he saw himself in that role, a bondservant. And again, we, I think we can insert here uh, ambassador. But those who, who serve the Lord, those who speak for the Lord, should faithfully represent the Lord and accurately reflect the Lord in their actions and their attitudes. And so Paul goes on here and he mentioned 
five characteristics of what we'll see here uh, as Christ's life and ministry. Okay, so what's the first one? He says, uh, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. We must not be argumentative. Don't, don't be someone who likes to fight and likes to debate. I think some Christians love the debate more than they love the soul of the person they're debating or love the person that they're, that they're debating. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I heard a story of a, of a situation of someone came home and said, hey, I got into this great debate today with this unbeliever and they were sharing all the things that they said to this person and then the other person says, hey, by the way, I'm curious, what was the name of the person that you were debating? They didn't know the name, their name. Because it wasn't about the person, it was about the debate. It was about winning the argument. And so we need to avoid being that person that, that cares more about, the, loves the debate rather than the person. We need to be someone who promotes unity and peace. We shouldn't be pugnacious. Uh, in other words, a fighter. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 3 was one of the qualifications of an elder. They, would, they shouldn't be pugnacious. Um, listen, we are clearly called to contend earnestly for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, right? Jude chapter 3. We are to contend earnestly for the faith, but we must be careful not to be contentious. Look over to Titus, just a couple pages to the right. Titus chapter 3, verse 2. Titus says that we are to malign no one and we are to be peaceable. Again, it's, it would seem very ironic. Here we are as ambassadors of peace, wanting to help people understand what God has done in Christ so that they can have peace with God, they can be reconciled with God, and then and we're basically at war with them. Doesn't make any sense. So we must now be quarrelsome. Secondly, we must be kind to all. Rather than being quarrelsome, the opposite is being kind to all. We should never be unkind or harsh or rude or insensitive. No matter how unkind or harsh or rude someone might be towards us. He goes on, not only are we to be kind to all, we should be able to teach. In other words, we should have the ability to teach the truth of the gospel, which, by the way, requires us to know the truth of the gospel, right? And I asked you last week, do you, do you even know the gospel? Can you explain the gospel? Do you have a, a, a gospel presentation um, memorized in your mind and your heart that you can kind of unpack uh, either in one sitting or maybe over a number of, of settings or sittings uh, with an unbeliever. Again, we don't have to, I mean, we don't always have to give them the whole gospel in that, you know, two-minute conversation. That uh, maybe that can be stretched out over time as we get to know the person and build a relationship with that person rather than just run them off, you know, uh, the very first time we meet them. Um, 
But build a friendship, build a relationship, show them that we care. But we need to be able to teach the truth and refute error. That's what Paul said in Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Again, a qualification of an elder who simply is to be an example to the rest of the body. So in other words, it wasn't just the elder that needed to be able to do this. He was simply to model how to do this for the rest of the body. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And again, that may require us to have to do some homework because uh, one of the reasons why Christians don't share their faith is because they're scared they're going to get asked a question they don't know the answer to. What if he asks me about evolution and and creation and and I really don't know all the the discussion there. I haven't really studied that out. Well, guess what? What 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 a motivation, what an incentive to study that out for yourself so that when somebody brings that up, you can talk about it. And you can have a knowledgeable conversation about creation and evolution. So you need to be able to teach. And then I love this, patient when wronged. Patient when wronged. In the NIV, some of you may have the NIV translation, it says not resentful. In other words, we, we shouldn't resent those who disagree with us. Even when they treat us poorly. And it's easy to do that, especially in the workplace or in maybe in a classroom when you're interacting with people on a regular basis and, and maybe you just kind of get the sense that your coworker doesn't like you or their, your classmate just kind of blows you off and it's easy to, to, to let maybe bitterness and resentment um, grow in your heart towards them. You, get, you, have, you have a kind of a bad perception of them in your mind and your heart. And, and so the point here is when it says being patient when wrong, we need to... We need to be willing to put up with being attacked and ridiculed uh, or mistreated without getting offended or, or retaliating. We're just patient when wrong. We, we, don't, we don't fight back. We don't argue back. We just take it and continue to love and care and serve. And I love this next phrase, with gentleness correcting those in opposition. In other words, we need to humbly and meekly seek to instruct them without projecting this air of superiority. I mean, we should never, ever, as Christians, when we're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, come across like a know-it-all. Because that kind of prideful attitude, that just turns people off. They, they won't want to listen to a thing we say if we're doing it with arrogance. If they, if they get a whiff of arrogance... As we interact with them, as we talk with them, they're going to give us the Heisman. <laughs> they, they don't want anything to do with it. You don't want anything to do with a prideful person. You don't, you don't like talking to prideful people who kind of have a you know, chip on their shoulder, kind of holier than thou, and been there, done that, and maybe someday you'll be as good as me or as whatever. We... we we avoid those kind of people. So don't, don't be that kind of person. I love 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3.15. Peter said, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. In other words, we need to always be ready at a moment's notice to tell someone why we believe in Jesus, why we love Christ, why we are the way we are. Yet, 
Peter said, with gentleness. Now that's helpful coming from the guy who when he and his Savior were opposed by the Roman army and the religious, Jewish religious leaders, what did he do? He whipped out the sword and chopped some dude's ear off, right? He was not very gentle um, in his early years as a follower of Christ, but over the years, God sanctified him, right? He became more humble and more gentle, and now he's exhorting that, hey, don't, uh, you know, don't whip out your sword. Oh, you, you want to go? <laughs> Let's go. I'm ready. No, be gentle. Titus 3.2, you're right there. Turn over to Titus 3.2. Don't malign anyone. Be peaceable. Gentle, showing every consideration for all men. And then how about this? 2 Corinthians 10.1. This is Paul. Again, being a model, being an example to Timothy. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Interesting, it was to the Corinthians, he said that, and it was also to the Corinthians that he would later write, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. He, he says later on, 2 Corinthians 10, 1, now I, Paul, myself, urge you, beg you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. In other words, as, as you're begging people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, don't be a jerk about it. Plead with the mercy and the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. So again, Paul sought to exemplify Christ in the way he confronted, he corrected his opponents. And I hope you're seeing how each of these five characteristics here that Paul mentioned to Timothy perfectly describe the Lord Jesus. Listen to the words of John Stott, one of my favorite commentators, he said this, all this is the demeanor which is fitting in the Lord's servant and is, of course, deliberately reminiscent of the servant of the Lord portrayed in the servant songs of Isaiah, i.e. Jesus himself. The servant was a teacher, for the Lord gave him the tongue of those who were taught, and he used it wisely. He knew how to sustain with the word, him that is weary, so meek was he in his ministry that he would never shout or make a noise, and so sensitive that he would deal gently with people whose courage had been bruised and whose faith burned low. He would never break a bruised reed or quench a dimly burning wick. And when people rose up in opposition to him, he, he did not resist or retaliate. He gave his back to the smiters, his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard, his face to those who spat upon him, and eventually allowed himself to be led like a sheep, silent and unresisting to the slaughter. Such was Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord's servant par excellence, who described himself as gently and lowly in heart, and this same meekness and gentleness of Christ must characterize all who claim to be the Lord's servants today. Amen?
And so we're simply to be like Jesus in the way that we serve him and the way we appeal on his behalf for people to be reconciled to God. And so by representing the Lord Jesus, whom we serve and who we speak for, we will keep people from being offended by us rather than by the message itself. It's, it's okay if people get offended by what we say, but they better not be offended by how we say it. Does that make sense? That if they're going to get offended, let them get offended by the message, the truth of the gospel, not by the fact that we're jerks, that we presented it in an unchristlike way. So we need to refuse silly speculative arguments. We need to represent the Lord Jesus. Number three, we need to rely on God and his word. We need to rely on God and his word. Verse 25, he says, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. Paul reminded Timothy here that he was powerless to get anyone to change their way out beliefs or their wicked lifestyles. Only God can change a person's mind. Only God can change a person's heart. Only God can change a person's life. Listen, the people we're sharing the gospel with, they can't even change themselves. Why, why would we think we could change them? Listen, no one ever on their own just decides to leave their old ways or, or turn over a new leaf. God must do that work in their lives. One commentator said it this way, no person, no matter how sincere and determined, can truly repent and change his own sinful thoughts and ideas and correct his own sinful life. Only God can work that miracle in their heart. And so no matter how hard we try and or they try, people will never change unless God enables them to change, which is another word for what? Repentance, unless God grants them repentance. And by the way, don't miss this because there's some in the church today that say, you know, you really can't add repentance as a requirement for salvation alongside faith because repentance is a work. And so we just need to tell people, all you need to do is believe. Well, that's half the gospel. The gospel, according to Jesus, is repent and believe. Amen. It's, it's two sides of the same coin. It's the, the two hinges. It's two sides of the hinge on which the door of salvation turns. But listen, repentance is no more a work than faith is. Well, we're okay with faith not being a work, right? It's just, you know, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works so that no one can boast. We, we get that. We're okay with that. We're comfortable with that. But when we talk about repentance, well, that sounds like we're telling somebody to do something. Well, we tell people they need to believe, they need to pay, place their faith in Christ. We know that's a gift from God, so why can't we tell them that they need to repent, they need to change, they need to turn away from their sin? Guess what? That's just as much a gift from God as faith is. 
Acts 5.31, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 11.18, when the Jews, Jewish believers were shocked that the gospel was being shared with Gentiles and they were, they were embracing Christ as their Messiah and this was like, this wasn't part of their theology. We weren't expecting this. We thought Jesus was our Messiah and so Paul had to... Um, defend their actions and, and why they were um, sharing the gospel with, with Gentiles. And he said this in Acts eleven eighteen. 18. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And so if perhaps God, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. That's why, personally, I think the best method for sharing the gospel is to tell people when you get to the end that they need to repent of their sin and they need to place their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. You and your heart and mine know based on what the Bible says, you have just asked them, invited them, instructed them, exhorted them, you're pleading with them to do something they cannot do in and of themselves. And so at that point, you say, you know what? Instead of signing to say, hey, you, you want to do that right now? Let's get you, let's seal the deal. Come on, let's pray, and I'll get you to sign this card, and, and uh, we'll, you know, we'll put you in the church rolls. And how about saying this? How about saying, you know what? And this is what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to go home, and I want you to get on your knees, and I want you to beg God to grant you repentance and faith. In other words, you're you're helping them understand that this is not something that they can do in and of themselves, that they have to ask God to grant these gifts of repentance and faith to them. Notice again, verse 25, and if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, they, they, they finally recognize the truth. They, 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 the, the, they acknowledge that, that they're wrong and you're right. The light bulb comes on. And again, we need to realize here that, that we can talk to someone until we're blue in the face, and we can show them all the right verses, and we can say all the right things, but ultimately, God has to change their hearts and lives. And I can't tell you how many times as a younger man, particularly in college, when I would, in high school and college, when I would engage in gospel conversations with my friends and my classmates uh, and, and, and I would, you know, didn't seem like I got anywhere in the conversation. And I was just like, man, I was, I was, I was bringing it, man. I, I had all these, you know, the, the, all these facts and, and, and all this information about creation and evolution. And I was giving them this archaeological data and, and, and all these scientific, you know, uh, facts. And, 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 and I would walk away thinking, oh, you know, if I'd, if I'd only said that, if I'd only remembered that verse, well, what was I doing? I was making it like, man, I could have changed their mind. I, if I had just said this or used that verse, that would, have, that would have pushed them over the edge. Then they would have got it saved. We need to depend completely on the Lord and his word. God never promised that our words would not return void. He said his word would not return void. And so by relying on God and his word, that will keep us from relying on our own eloquence 
our own intelligence to convince others of the truth. I think our approach should be the same uh, as Paul's in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And for those of you who think, you know, I, man, I'm just, I'm just not eloquent enough. I'm just not intelligent enough to get into a conversation with somebody about the gospel. Well, even if you were as eloquent and as intelligent as Paul, it didn't matter. Listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. In other words, you didn't come to Christ because I was so eloquent and I was so intelligent. No, you came to Christ because the power of God. And he just happened to use me and, and my simple presentation. In other words, I forsook my confidence in my intelligence, and Paul was a smart guy, and my eloquence, and he was a gifted communicator, right? He said, I wasn't trusting in those things. I was just simply trusting in the simple message of the cross. The power of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Last approach here. Number four, remember the ultimate objective. Remember the ultimate objective. Verse 26. If perhaps God may grant their repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That expression, they may come to their senses. Hopefully that reminds you of the story of the prodigal son, right? In Luke chapter 15, verse 17, when the, when, when the prodigal son had run out of money and he was sitting there in the pigsty and had nowhere else to turn, it says, and he came to his what? Senses. In other words, that's a, that's a description of getting saved, right? That, that, that if finally the light came on, it all made sense, and he knew what he needed to do. This phrase here, in this context, that they may come to their senses, literally means that they may sober up. And so the, the idea here is, is someone coming out of a drunken stupor. It's like they, they're intoxicated by error and, and false teaching uh, has, has resulted in a loss of judgment and, and a proper control of their faculties. Um, and so they come to their senses. They sober up. Spiritually and maybe even literally, right? And escape from the snare of the devil. In other words, they're rescued from the satanic lies that have ensnared them, having been held captive by him to do his will. Listen, Satan's goal is to capture people and make them do his will rather than God's will. And so he numbs the conscience, he confuses the mind, he paralyzes the will, he blinds the eyes of unbelievers. And the picture that comes to my mind here is 
someone who's been kidnapped and drugged and brainwashed and kept in this sedated state so they can't think clearly. We've seen stories in the news about people that have been kidnapped and, 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 and abducted and, and, and drugged and brainwashed and they're kept chained up in some basement somewhere for years and nobody knows about it. And they finally get free. I mean, just think about this is the state of unbelievers. I mean, how, rather than thinking, how could they think that or believe that or live like that? Our hearts should be burdened by their condition. They are a captive of Satan. John Stott says, from such a captivity in which men are both trapped and doped by the devil, only God can deliver them by giving them repentance unto acknowledgement of the truth. Yet he effects the rescue through the human ministry of one of his servants who avoids quarreling and teaches with kindness, forbearance, and gentleness. In other words, if God's going to use anybody to win, to rescue one of these captives of Satan, it's not going to be a jerk for Jesus. It's going to be somebody who does it in a Christ-like way, right? Paul reminded Timothy that the ultimate goal of correcting those with wrong thinking, wrong living, was to help them escape captivity to Satan. That's the mission that God clearly assigned to Paul immediately after he was saved. Remember Acts 26? This is his testimony, Paul's testimony. In in Acts 26, 17, this is recounting what God said to him. He said, I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. And as I mentioned already, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I'll never forget reading the story about a certain apologist who debated the well-known atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare. Remember her? Uh, the um, one who got prayer, kicked out of school, separation of the state. I'm, my son's not going to be praying. You know, we're atheists. And anyway, she loved to go around debating Christians. And so this Christian apologist set up a debate with her. And during the debate, man, he just tore her up one side down the other, very cruel, very cutting in his mannerisms. And after the debate was over, some of the apologist's Christian friends suggested to him that he had been overly harsh towards her and, in fact, had driven her farther away from the Lord than she already was. And that apologist immediately replied, I didn't come here to save a soul but to destroy a heretic. That's a sad statement. Because tragically, that guy had lost sight of the goal. And we need to never forget that the goal in confronting, correcting others 
sharing the gospel is not to win the argument, but to win their soul. Amen? And when we remember this goal, rather than seeking to make ourselves look good, well, I really told him, I really kind of one-upped him. I came out on the good side of that debate. No, we'll seek their eternal good. More often than not, what wins people over is not so much what we say, but how we say it. And just to encourage you, regarding the sovereignty of salvation, because we see this here, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, having been captive by him to do his will. Listen, that's God's job. He just gives us the privilege of participating. And I know some of you know uh, Jason Drum. Uh, his dad, Dave, went to heaven this week uh, after a massive stroke and that gave us the opportunity for Jason and I to connect and just talk and um, just catch up a bit. I haven't really talked to him for a number of years and he was just reminding me of his testimony because I said, hey, Jason, I've been thinking about you quite a bit because we're reading through Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And I remember, faintly remember, that that's you, t- you telling me that that's what God used to bring you to Christ was reading Holiness by J.C. Ryle well, years ago. This is back in 2003 or so, the first time we read through it. And he goes, oh, yeah, Absolutely. He said, in fact, I'll never forget it. He said, I was uh, working at Naramco, and uh, in fact, that's where you were meeting for Ironman at the time, and these guys, my fellow workers, were saying, hey, you should come to Ironman, and we're reading this book, Holiness, and in fact, somebody gave me a borrowed copy, kind of stole George Hepner's copy of the book, one of our elders, and gave it to him to take home that night. It was a Thursday night. He said it was after a keg party, and he was just sitting there all by himself late at night. Everybody had gone home. Party was over. He was there drinking a beer, smoking a cigarette, and opened up to chapter 17, titled Thirst Relieved. And he said he read the verse talking about when Jesus comes in your life, you know, rivers of living water will flow from your soul. And he's thinking, man, this kind of sounds like Buddha. This is kind of weird. Jesus is kind of weird. But he had told the guys that he was going to come the next morning, and so he thought, I don't want to, you know, not be a man of my word, so I'm going to read this chapter and show up tomorrow morning. And so he read the chapter, and he said by the end of the chapter, he was convinced that Jesus was everything he claimed to be in the Gospel of John and in that chapter. And he said, I started that chapter as an unbeliever, and by the time that chapter was, I was done reading that chapter, I was a believer. And um, if you know Jason, he started coming to our church, felt God calling him to preach, went to seminary, and uh, now he's a pastor. And uh, I'll just be honest with you, he was my neighbor. And he and his brothers, his little brother Timmy in particular, (laughs) 
Um, they were the last guys in this community that I thought would ever get saved. They were hellions, and they'll admit that to you. And I remember, I still remember Saturday nights, midnight, trying to sleep, trying to go to bed. You know, I got to get up and preach the next morning. Saturday night, almost every Saturday night, all I could hear was Jason playing his drums in his garage. Midnight, and I'm thinking, Lord, why, why, why do I have to be neighbors with these people? <laughs> and, and little did I know the work that God was doing in those boys' hearts. And um, shame on me for not trusting the Lord that no one is beyond salvation. And God did that work on his own. He granted Jason repentance, led him to the knowledge of the truth. He came to his senses. He escaped from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do as well. He is a trophy of God's grace. He is one that was rescued from the jaws of Satan and death and hell. And how do you know, right, that guy at work, that girl at school, that person you interact with in your neighborhood that you think that is the last person on this planet who would ever get saved. They, they would be the least interested in hearing the gospel from me or anyone else. You don't know. You never know. And so that's why we just be faithful. And that's why we just be bold. And we share Christ in a Christ-like way, trusting that God will accomplish his work in his way, in his time, for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word from, Timothy, or from Paul to Timothy today that we can learn from. Lord, help us to share Christ in a Christ-like way this week. Help us to not get into silly arguments and discussions and with people. Help us to represent you in a manner worthy of you. Help us to be dependent and reliant on you and your word and, and Lord, help us to not lose sight of the ultimate objective, and that is that these people, Lord, would be, these helpless captives of Satan would be released, would be rescued. They would be set free for your glory and their good, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.